Welcome to Subscribing to Wellness, the show where Rachel Newman and myself, Daniel Fairman, sit down with leading founders, executives, and investors committed to building a healthier future for consumers. Today's episode is brought to you by our newest partner, Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a science-backed electrolyte ratio with none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. I've personally been using Element for nearly six months now daily, and it's not only the cleanest hydration powder in terms of function, but I love the taste, especially the citrus and watermelon flavors. Element supports a low-carb lifestyle and will boost your performance and recovery, regardless of if you're a serious athlete or a weekend warrior. So head to drinkelement.com slash subscribing to wellness. That's drinklmnt.com slash subscribing to wellness for a special introductory deal on your first order. You won't regret it. Today on Subscribing to Wellness, we're joined by Katie Spies, CEO and founder of Mave. Mave is on a mission making meticulously researched and thoughtfully designed wellness products for dogs. Mave's daily vitamins and raw food are all human grade, complete and balanced, and formulated by veterinary nutritionists. Mave closed a $10 million Series A led by VMG Partners in late 2022. Katie, welcome to, to Subscribing to Wellness. How are you? Good. Thank you. Excited to be here. Awesome to have you. Um, really excited about this topic. We haven't really had many discussions on the pet space. An amazingly exciting sector within consumer. Um, I know your background is pretty heavy in engineering, so really interested to open up and just hear about how that background kind of inspired you to throw yourself into the pet industry. Yeah, it's, um, it is not the most linear path at all. I never realized growing up that this was the space I'd be working in. Um, I probably would have uh, gotten here much faster if I had just put two and two together earlier, okay. but um, was an engineer for a long time. I was in early stage on the product development and engineering side, had a dog and have always been an animal person, grew up in a, a house filled with cats, dogs, lizards, frogs, everything. And when my dog started to get sick, our vets recommended I change his diet and I started making his own food and it was so difficult and cumbersome and everything sold in retail was really expensive and wasn't quite right. And so, um, I was spending so much of my weekends making food for my dog and thinking like, this is such a big problem that somebody really needs to solve so I can go do other things. And about six years later, officially started the company. So six years of like very non-linear path, putting together how much I needed to work in this space. I was a dog walker for a year. I was doing it part-time, sending food across the country for a few years. And then in 2018, pulled the trigger to go full-time. Got it. So that experience kind of walking dogs, having kind of your own personal connection to a dog that like had kind of maybe GI issues, medical issues kind of served as your inspiration that there might be something there. And then it sounds like you almost kind of had like a, like a beta based off of like building kind of a community around yourself by walking other dogs. Is that kind of right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I wish I had thought about it actively as a beta when I was doing it versus just organically um, growing the number of people that I was sending dogs, dog food to. Um, but I had this personal experience, obviously for your own pet, you're willing to do just about anything. 
Um, and so there's nothing that was going to stop me from making it for him and met a few other people and they asked me to make it for them as well. And over time, that list grew very organically. There was no website or um, even like documentation around it. And people would just spend me on the weekends. And eventually I moved across the country and people would say like, I'll do anything if you could please just continue making and shipping this food. And that hit me as like extremely surprising um, that I wasn't committing to any sort of schedule or regularity. And they were still willing to put up with me making them food and shipping it across the country. Um, and eventually the list was big enough and the demand was big enough that I caught on that there's something very real um, going on here. And there's a much bigger problem in the market that so many dog owners are willing to ask me, who I, I was in school at the time, to inconsistently ship them food across the country as an individual, um, that I realized that it was something worth spending a lot more time on. Yeah, it's interesting. And and so you were literally buying kind of real ingredients yourself, going into your kitchen every day, like chopping it up and like freezing or how did that work? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I was buying retail ingredients. So I would go to Whole Foods at first and then a Costco and other more bulk style stores, um, chopping them up in my kitchen. I had a roommate at the time who was really unhappy with that. Um, and <laughs> I was picking up all of the freezer space because I wanted to individually freeze all the pieces. So I didn't have to deal with thawing the entire batch later to, to serve it. Um, and would portion them out into Tupperware containers and label them. And that was my life for a long time before starting Maeve. Got it. And so dogs are literally capable of eating like raw human food. Like that is completely normal for their digestion. You don't need to do, you know, artificial preservatives or all the other. It really is like the, like the DNA of the dog to be able to eat that kind of meat. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's actually much better for their metabolism and GI system to eat unprocessed foods than it is to eat highly processed foods with fillers and artificials and preservatives. Um, eating processed foods that you buy in store, it actually changes the pH of their gut, mm. which the gut flora and it shifts their metabolism and it causes some downstream issues for a lot of dogs. And so eating completely natural unprocessed foods, as long as you're food safe about it and you follow some basic food safety protocols is actually really amazing for dog's health. Very interesting. Um, and so it sounds like, like by you kind of packing up some, some meals for owners around the United States, like their dogs were having better health outcomes, which obviously kind of influenced your confidence to move forward. Um, and it sounds like there must've been a pretty big gap in ingredient quality. Um, when you think about the kind of incumbents that were kind of feeding kibble to the majority of pet owners around the United States, like, I guess it's, Blue Buffalo and Purina is probably like the lead value brands. And so I, I guess what, what kind of the gap is, is just the, the incumbents really aren't committed to high quality ingredients, probably as a means of, you know, margin and um, scalability. Yeah. And Blue Buffalo and Purina, they're actually considered premium players. Okay. The value players are our name brands that are much lower in cost and um, people don't think of them as commonly. Most pet owners are buying premium kibble or even ultra premium kibble, which is really interesting because even those brands aren't following food safety protocols or ingredient quality protocols that you would demand of like the most basic value bread in the human space. Mm -hmm. um, 
And dog owners across the U.S. and other countries have really started to pay attention to that and have recognized how many recalls happen in the pet space. Um, they've recognized the amount of correlation between long-term health outcomes and nutrition, which is not super surprising. It's what we've started to notice in human food in the last 20 years, and it plays the similar role in the pet space. And so um, ingredient quality is a huge problem. Food safety is a big problem. And then even just like the macronutrient makeup, like the ratio of protein to carb to fat mm-hmm. in a typical processed food, like a kibble is very different from what pets naturally need. Like dogs actually biologically don't require any carbs, but kibble is 40 to 60% carbohydrates. Um, and so those three things are the biggest factors changing the dynamic in the pet space. Got it. Interesting. And so fa- uh, fast forward to you launched March of 2020. Is that right? That's right. Um, talk me through launch. You know, it sounds like you started off kind of self-producing. Um, it was kind of a pure DTC launch, which probably was quite timely, but I'm curious just how you went um, about launching and why you did it kind of the way you did. Yeah. That's a great question. So March of 2020 is a month that everyone remembers um, for different reasons, but we had been gearing up for launch. We were self-manufacturing, self-producing all of our food in the kitchen that we built out in New York City. Um, And going into the launch, we expected to do a lot of in-person activations, um, on the ground events, and then COVID hit and the world kind of shut down the same week as we were planning to launch. And so we had to act quickly and change all of our plans to be very online focused. Mm-hmm. We were entirely D2C and subscription when we launched, which ultimately played in our favor because retail was shut down and online shopping soared, um, especially in the grocery category and in categories like pets. Um, originally, we were entirely gorilla. We weren't doing any paid marketing on on the digital traditional digital channels. And we had to shift gears pretty quickly because foot traffic around the the places that we had historically been doing a lot of gorilla very quickly shut down when COVID hit. Um, So we shifted gears. We started doing a lot of partnerships on social and online partnerships with other brands who were early stage like we were. Um, We managed to keep our kitchen open and we were just struggling to keep up with demand. For the first several weeks, we had a workforce that we were trying to keep safe. We um, outgrew that space multiple times and had to like knock down literal walls and expand the facility footprint. Um, And our product is shipped frozen. And so in the first summer of COVID, a lot of the national carriers, FedEx and UPS, they had really poor on-time delivery rates. And so that was a big headwind for us because everything we do relies on shipping timely so that the food stays frozen in transit. So we leaned into alternate ways to get product to customers. We had to be really scrappy. We leaned into social partnerships and other ways to meet customers online. We still had very little funding, so we weren't doing any paid advertising online, but we managed to continue growing um, and word of mouth really carried us in the first year of our growth. And then it was just a matter of like, how do we keep up with this crazy demand while keeping a workforce in COVID in New York City safe and uh, continuing to produce more and more food each month? really interesting like a few points there that i find interesting one is you know during that kind of shift aggressive shift to like more online purchasing behavior of course there was like a you know a big organic kind of uh acquisition of customers right off the bat i still think a lot of 
brands kind of took advantage of that period and invested quite heavily and paid to like supercharge the opportunity. But yeah. then I think the fact that for you, it sounds like it was very organic um, and not really through paid because you didn't have the funding is just a further proof point that like the concept was working naturally and organically. Um, and then I think that obviously, I mean, 23 million households, I think acquired a pet during COVID. So that helps. Um, but I think also you must have had a lot of learnings right out of the gates by starting as a digitally native brand on kind of like what you might need to change over the next six months to a year um, versus kind of trying to to go omni-channel right from the beginning or even into retail right from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Um, because we had been so focused on digital, we were well positioned to just lean entirely into the the digital expansion that happened in the early days of COVID. Um I wish we had launched maybe like two months earlier so that we could have mm -hmm. optimized some of the funnels and optimized the site a little bit better and started the learning process versus being in the fire hose trying to learn at the same time. Um, but luckily we had been focused in the right place. COVID for the most part was tailwinds for us. We were able to keep the team safe and healthy while half of millennials got a dog and a fourth of all American households acquired a new pet. Yeah. Online pet spending almost entirely moved uh, or pet spending overall almost entirely moved online. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm glad that we had focused there before. And so then it was like, all right, we didn't really have scalable supply infrastructure at first, but we were in our, in the back of our minds, kind of like thinking about it from the get-go. So when we had like the scale and the demand, like we would have those kind of third-party co-packers ready to work with us. Is that, or is, at what point did you kind of reach a threshold or it was like, all right, it's time. Yeah. We had a very different plan going into launch than what we actually executed post-launch. So going into launch, we we had planned different marketing channels because we were planning to do more guerrilla and on on boots on the ground uh, in real life marketing. And we had to shift gears. From a manufacturing perspective, we had this owned facility that we were running ourselves. We owned all of our manufacturing and fulfillment operations ourselves. And we thought like, let's launch the product to market that way and take all of the learnings from early customer feedback to tweak anything around packaging, um, formula, um, positioning, anything else that we need to change in the product before moving into a co-man where it's a little more stringent and we can't quickly make shifts. Um, we were only investing in maybe like a week or two weeks of inventory on hand at a time, which made it much more agile. And we thought, okay, in six months, we'll have much more scale and the product will be much more stable and we can move to a co-man at that point. When COVID hit, we started growing much faster than we originally expected, which is great, um, except all of our energy went into expanding our footprint and just keeping up with demand and continuing to get orders out in a relatively timely manner. And we didn't have excess capacity to go spend finding a new co-man. So we ultimately stayed in that facility for about a year longer than we expected to. And we kept investing CapEx and expanding the facility versus moving to a command and investing in inventory. Um, we finally moved to our first command in 2021. And that really unlocked the business potential because then we don't have to spend energy managing a workforce and managing morning deliveries and anything that could go wrong in a manufacturing facility. And instead can focus on building a great relationship with amazing co-man partners. Um, it just happened much later than we originally expected. Got it. Um, and I guess just by nature of having your own kind of DTC operation for that first year, what were some of the 
biggest learnings that you kind of took away from your consumers and conversations you were having with your consumers that then kind of went into uh, maybe adjusting the product, the business strategy? Yeah, we learned tons by owning every step of the process. Um, At that point in time, we were almost entirely vertically integrated because Mm -hmm. we were owning all of the vendor relationships, manufacturing everything, fulfilling all of the orders ourselves, and then handling all of customer communications as a team of four. Um, we learned a lot about customer preferences and what the core value prop of the product truly was pre-launch. We had this beta that was really just hundreds of people that I had met over time or were referrals of referrals who were buying food from me personally. And we thought that they had, um, like this hypothetical value prop. We thought they cared a lot more about portion sizing than they ultimately did. It turns out that they care about some of the things that you mentioned at the start of the call around ingredient quality, food safety, and the actual efficacy of the food, which really comes down to the macronutrient makeup. Um, We had originally thought like portion sizing is a huge headache. Let's take that off their plate and have way more skews and individually portion things personally to each person's dog. Um, We found out very quickly that they, they don't care about that. And that makes it much harder for them to know what they're purchasing. And so Changing the packaging was a big unlock um, in the first summer after launch. Um, we learned a lot about their expectations around shipping, and we we were not meeting them because many of those expectations are set by bigger brands and Amazon-style companies who are able to ship things very quickly and deliver them in two days or less. And as a tiny brand shipping frozen who can only ship Monday through Wednesday, um, we learned a lot about what mattered to customers and operationally how to deliver as best we can um, by strategically coordinating orders to come in on a certain date and adjusting our communications to customers to set better expectations. Um, We learned tons. I mean, to this day, I still take five or 10 customer calls a week just because it was really helpful to take those in the early days when we had nobody else to answer phones and hear directly from customers about what they love and what they hate so that we can actively optimize the business every week. Um, But value prop, logistics, customer experience, um, those were really critical in the early days. Yeah, the huge advantage of of being able to launch DTC, even if shipping frozen is is a challenge. Um, And then I guess, I mean, you kind of brought up the point about Amazon. So as a pet entrepreneur, pet food entrepreneur, is it wise of me to go into Chewy.com right away where there's this hypercharged community that's already very commonly kind of going there to buy? Or is it kind of smart of me to keep my DTC going for as long as I can? And once there's kind of enough brand awareness, credibility, differentiation, then go on to Chewy.com. I'm not sure, honestly, like I'm not as educated as you on Chewy.com, I'm sure. But obviously with Amazon, like they have a big private label business. There's always maybe that risk. But uh they obviously are very helpful when it comes to logistics and speed to mark speed to to customer. Um, so just curious how like you thought kind of through that as well. Yeah, it it really depends. Putting myself in the shoes of another pet food entrepreneur, it really depends the style of business you're aiming to build. For us, brand really matters, and so um, we needed to build some brand allegiance and brand awareness as a D 2 C on our own before entering one of those channels so that we can have um, like a true brand world that people can enter and be a part of as part of the community and know who Maeve is outside of just one of the many products in a catalog on your Amazon search. 
at the same time, Amazon or Chewy have this huge advantage in that they have the inventory of eyeballs and shoppers who are actively going there. And the pet space is really fascinating right now because it's exploding. The number of dogs in America is growing at a really rapid rate. There are more dogs than there are children in the U.S. right now. And the incumbents have not really kept up with the demand or the value prop that consumers are looking for. And so there's tons of white space in pet that I think is harder to find in traditional consumer. And so if you're a pet entrepreneur and you have a really novel product, going to Amazon or Chewy in the early days could be great for you because people are making searches that incumbents just can't can't meet. Um, and if you have a novel product and you show up on page one of the search, then you could do really well on Amazon. And maybe you want to launch an owned D2C channel later or a subscription channel later or brick and mortar retail later, but you can drive great revenue on those channels. Um, for us, those are important channels to play on, but we wanted to build a true customer community and build credibility as a brand outside first. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been helpful, especially because in food, it's a highly considered purchase. In other categories of pet, it's less highly considered and you can perform really well with a nascent brand. Got it. And so is Chewy like aggressive about trying to bring you on knowing that like you guys are making some noise and that like there's an opportunity to bring incremental customers onto the platform who maybe already have like a loyal following or is it kind of like you approach them or how, how do you kind of deal with those kind of conversations? Yeah, Chewy similar to Target or walmart.com um, or petsmartpetco.com. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't call them aggressive. I think that they actively reach out to the same level that the other e-com e e-tailers do, as well as other brick and mortar retailers do. Um, most pet shoppers are already on Chewy, just like they're already on Amazon. And so it's incremental revenue for them more than it is uh, incremental customers. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can get somebody to subscribe to pet food on Chewy, then they're going to add other products to cart too. And so they know the upsell. We have active conversations with many of those e-tailers. Um, it's more about finding the right partnership and the timing of the partnership that would be fruitful for both them and the brand. Gotcha. No, that's a great answer. Um, so then fast forwarding to like 2021 and now 2022, obviously at some point there is an iOS update. Um, it became harder to use cookies to, you know, retarget consumers with accuracy. Does that in any way impact um, your ambition to become a true omni-channel brand sooner? Um, or I would conversely think that given that, you know, as we spoke earlier about paid as a percent of your marketing budget doesn't sound like it's super, super high compared to maybe some other brands. So maybe it doesn't impact you as heavily. Um, but just curious how you think strategically through that update and how it might impact kind of your commercialization strategy of the future. Yeah, it's a really interesting time for D2C at large. Um, I, I think in the early days of launching Maeve, I thought very hard about whether this business model was one that could actually be sustainable at any point in time. We watched before I founded the company in, in 2016, 17, 18, I watched a lot of D2C players grow very quickly, but very unprofitably, and then have mediocre or even bad outcomes. And so I was pretty skeptical about the world of D2C and e-commerce at large being venture backable and being sustainable in any way. And before starting Maeve was thinking about what the right recipe would be for a sustainable D2C venture and realized that in order to be successful, you need a high retention customer. Mm -hmm. And 
pet food is one of the areas where there's a natural tendency to subscribe versus a lot of my friends who are consumer and CPG founders in categories where direct to consumer is not a, a big component of sales today. Subscription is not a big driver of purchasing behaviors um, in like sauces or some beverage categories or um, better for you noodle categories. It's harder to drive a subscription customer online than it is in direct consumer pet where you know exactly what your dog's consumption behavior will be this month, next month, and the month after that. Um, there's natural subscription tendency. And so luckily we find that the LTV and the retention is there in our category. We weren't super affected by iOS for the reason you mentioned. Paid just didn't make up a massive percentage of our, our marketing budget. Um, so we found that D2C really works for us. And then when it comes to thinking about the channel strategy, we know that there are shoppers on Chewy, Amazon, Target, Walmart, Petco, PetSmart that are looking for products like ours and we could show up in a really novel way. And then it's just a matter of when the right timing is from a logistics perspective and shipping frozen is still not super easy on those channels. Um, but putting myself in the mindset of a traditional pet entrepreneur, I think like the question is really about your business model and whether D2C will make sense and will be sustainable for you, or if it's a great proofing ground and a stepping stone into retail or third-party e-com. Um, and I think any of those answers could be the right answer. It just really depends on the brand. Love it. I love the way you talk about retention and repeat um, as such a high priority because I do think there are a lot of DTC businesses that had that surge, right, in 2020, especially, and then for part of 2021. And then, like, you know, some investors got excited and, and maybe kind of the the retention numbers weren't completely there. And then now kind of after these updates, you know, that's kind of been a kryptonite point. But it seems like you know, if you had great retention numbers, even with kind of the boost in traction you were, you were kind of given due to like the increase in people buying pets, um, the bills, the business feels long-term, uh, you know, sustainable for the long-term because you have the retention confidence to kind of back it up. Um, last kind of question I'm just curious about is what's next? How, how are you kind of innovating? Is it kind of all about raw dog food only? Do you switch flavors? How do you think kind of through the future pipeline? Yeah. Um, a lot of what we're working on relates to this conversation. We're working on launching other channels to meet customers and meet yeah. them where they currently shop. I think that's really important to just building an, an easier, better for you product where customers don't have to change where they shop and what they shop for, but they can just change one of those. Um, we're also working on new SKUs. We're super focused on raw and raw is a space that's much more popular in Europe or in Canada in those markets, as much as 40% of the population feeds raw versus in the US, it's much, much smaller. And so making raw mass market and making it accessible to all is really one of our core mission statements. Um, so very focused on raw, but we're expanding our product uh, assortment. We're expanding proteins, expanding flavors. We're launching a puppy skew very soon. We'll be the only direct consumer human grade pet food company in the US producing a puppy specific formula that's formulated especially for the growth stage of your dog's life. Um, and then we're investing a lot in research and science so that we can make more claims and we can back up our claims with more credible studies about how Maeve makes your dog healthier, feeding Maeve is better for your dog than an alternative. Um, we've always partnered with PhD veterinary scientists and deepening that partnership is a really exciting frontier for us. Love it. It's such an exciting space. And I think there's strategics, I mean, they really are going to have to think carefully about if they kind of try to come in earlier than they have in the past, because 
Yeah. I do think there's some serious gaps kind of in their portfolios compared to where kind of the needs of pet owners are going. Um, and I even, I mean, I love native pet as well. I love yummers. I like the way they're approaching supplements um, yeah. and additives as opposed to all, you know, traditional kibble, but also some amazing players like you who are doing traditional dog food and really uh, investing in the high quality ingredients. Um, last question is just how you subscribe to wellness. We asked all our guests this. So what are some habits that you are focused on for during a weekly basis while you're managing Maeve? Yeah, I think that's really important for anybody, whether you're starting a business or working in a company. Um, I'm a very obsessive person. And so I do a lot for my physical health and sleep patterns, hydration, things like that. But I think the biggest thing I do is try to have uh, one or two new small hobbies that mm -hmm. take me away from my obsession. So uh, I think if I didn't have those, I would be the kind of person that would just like lock myself in a room and focus on one thing indefinitely for months on end. And I know that's not great for my creativity and innovation. And so having a couple small hobbies, even if they're um, really rookie hobbies, like I'm a, a very new cyclist or uh, trying to run my first half marathon, having tiny hobbies that take me away for a couple hours a week is really nice for my mental health and getting me away from the bigger obsession, um, thinking about something different or meeting new people. Um, but I find that small hobbies are really helpful. Yeah. I also find that when you're doing like something completely different, sometimes your most creative ideas kind of like come into your brain. Like I'll be at the gym and I'll be like, Oh, like, that was a great question for like my upcoming podcast with Katie, like, but I wasn't thinking about it. You know, it's just kind of, you're zoning out and, uh, good things often come to mind. So completely agree. Um, yeah. awesome. Where can uh, our listeners learn more about Maeve? Easiest places are meetmave.com, M-E-E-T, Maeve, M-A-E-V.com or on Instagram. We're also on TikTok, but, uh, Instagram and web are easiest. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me. Have a good one. Today's episode is brought to you in partnership with Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to see what the hype was all about. Now, I literally can't miss a day. It's the first thing I put in my body every single morning. As someone who suffers from IBS, AG1 has completely improved my gut health and allows me to have sustained energy throughout the day. And since I'm always on the go, the travel packs make it so easy to stay consistent wherever I am. Love it. I've personally been taking AG1 for a while. And as someone who lacked a multivitamin routine, AG1 has been the perfect product to mix into my morning routine. Truthfully, I was a skeptic at first as I'm with most supplements and vitamins, but I've felt noticeably better at the start of morning workouts and definitely have seen an improvement in my digestive health. I tend to mix my AG1 with two tablespoons of lemon juice and coconut water, and it's delicious. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash STW. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash STW to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. 
Feel free to rate, review, and share the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Wellness. If you'd like to sponsor us, please see the supporter link in our podcast bio. We hope everyone has a great rest of week filled with wellness, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.